Hi, this is John Deke, continuing to celebrate the 25th year of the Very Young Composers, the program of the New York Philharmonic. We're listening to a piece by Melody Jung, 12 years old, called Opalescent. This is scene 25, China, Korea, North and South. Japan, a long-term and consistent very young composer partner, proved to be only the first of our Asian connections. In 2008, the Philharmonic was setting out on what would be a tour that caught the attention of the world. Besides visiting mainland China, which at that time in itself was an event, we also visited Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, and North Korea. In China, after performing in Beijing, we flew to Shanghai. Shanghai was already a bustling modern metropolis with new buildings crowding out old. A remarkable woman, Shirley Young, had grown up in Shanghai, educated in the U.S., and she became a transformative businesswoman who was credited with forming an initiative to help General Motors regain its international market share which had been in decline since the 1990s, and she then became a chairperson of the famous Committee of 100, which used classical music to help bridge cultural divides between the U.S. and China. So, this is the quality of woman I was dealing with, as she showed an interest in the very young composers to the extent that she arranged for me to work with six Chinese students from their children's palace, as they called it, for me to guide them to performance at a major concert hall where the Philharmonic was also to play. Since time was severely limited, I mean, I was used to working with kids over a period of a semester, or at least several weeks, and I only had a few days in Shanghai, I called and I emailed ahead to give the kids and a local mentor an idea of what we were going to be doing in the next few days that I would be present so that they would be ready. Shirley made sure that each communication got to the right destination. I had no idea at first what the level of musical knowledge and preparation would be of these students, nor whether they would be writing in Western style or traditional Chinese. Now, Shirley, Shirley Young, was so exacting as to translators, times, locations, and transport to and from the workshops that Ted Whippard, who was on tour with us, may have been taken aback as Shirley would brook no opposition to her preparations. But to Ted's credit, of course, he pitched right in and helped coordinate the project. For my part, I was delighted to have them both in charge, as my task was already daunting. I had specified at least three professional musicians, Chinese musicians, to do demonstrations for our young students, including both Western and Chinese percussion. I remember our violist at the Philharmonic, Peter Keynote, and also violinist Nasun, who was a Shanghai native, cellist Wendy Law, who was very important to me, uh, more about her later, and our flutist, Wendy Mindy Kaufman. They were all so eager and interested, and the students, of course, took to them immediately. When I arrived for the first class, I was delighted with the attentive preparation of the students who were aged about 10 to 13 years old. Three of them wrote in Western notation, and the other three used traditional Chinese notation, which in order to help them write out scores and parts, 
I had to learn to decipher the Chinese style myself. One of the students, a quiet but supremely artistic girl named Ijun Zhang, helped me learn. She also played the Zhongran, if I'm pronouncing that right, <laughs> which she played somewhat like a sitar. When Wendy, Wendy Law, and I demonstrated the cello and the bass, she picked up her instrument and joined right in with us. She was fascinated with the bass and wound up in a matter of days writing for me so idiomatically I would have been pleased with such a part by a professional composer. Another young girl, Yue Fang, was studying flute and not so advanced as the others, and so Peter and I felt the need to encourage her a bit specially, and she wound up writing a combination Eastern-Western piece with such a lovely, sad solo part for Mindy. I was so pleased with her as I was with all of the kids. The concert, which included, apart from us, the Philharmonic, of course, our brass section, and their local youth orchestra. It was a fully attended media event. I mean, television cameras and reporters were all over the place. One boy in our class, who himself wrote a virtuoso piano part for himself to play with our accompaniment, he showed up in white tie and tails. Ijun's piece was unbelievably brilliant and expressive, transcending the barriers of age, gender, and nationality. I was so proud of all those kids. Almost without my knowledge, the event, which proved to be one of the most newsworthy, talked about, and most controversial, was the very young composers of Shanghai. Ijun became a celebrity, with many interviews and shots of her playing with us. In a national interview, which I'm told reached 300 million Chinese people, Ijun said, quote, All my life I have been told exactly what to do and what to play. Now come these Americans, and I feel so free. Now I want to become a musician. When I saw her words, uh, she was speaking in Chinese, of course, and I was seeing the subtitles translated. My joy was extreme, but tempered by the fact that, well, she was not speaking in a free country, you know what I mean? And sure enough, never underestimate the power of the authority or of the academy. Shirley Young later reported to me that that very next week after we'd left, she was again interviewed, national television, but this time by a professor of composition at the university, and that he made fun of her saying, quote, don't think that you are a composer. You are not a composer at all. You are merely playing with toys. <sighs> Shirley sounded so sad. Well, so was I. And she said that Ijun, of course, would not dare to speak back to this professor, but merely hung her head in shame. Oh, my goodness. What can I say to this? I told Shirley that I'd gotten this resistance before, but we always had to persevere in the face of it and that we should continue our efforts in China. But it took seven years before we returned to China to pick up where we'd left off. And still, <laughs> this tour of 2008 was not over by a long shot. As I said, talking about North Korea, we were prepared to be the first orchestra, indeed the first among almost any Western people to cross the demilitarized zone of 1953 into North Korea. 
Long before the tour began, we knew that what we were about to do was being watched not just by the U.S., but by the entire world. One day at intermission of a rehearsal, we were called to the orchestra lounge in New York to hear an informative discussion by none other than Robert M. Gates, Secretary of Defense in the Bush administration. I was inspired by his calm but firm openness to this diplomatic opportunity and how important our mission was. One would have thought that he would talk to us like, you know, novice employees or something, warning us about every move, but no, no. He did, however, outline the severity of behavioral difference that we could expect in North Korea, as well as some dangers to avoid. He spoke with respect, entertained questions from us, and seemed to work well with Zari Mehta, at that time our executive director. So, it was February, and North Korea was icy cold. We were greeted at the airport with armed guards and buses taking us directly to the hotel. The streets of Pyongyang were utterly deserted, with shops and stores looking like non-functioning pasteboard cutouts. I do remember that feeling and that sight while visiting both East Germany and the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, but this was even more extreme, as we were strictly not allowed to go anywhere without a minder or a chaperone who would decide where we could go and where not. In fact, we couldn't set foot outside the hotel. The hotel itself seemed to be the only building around that was more than a few stories tall. I found also that the building was not fully heated, as one night I was talking to my minder in an elevator. The door opened to utter darkness, and the cold came rushing in. She got out, and the door closed. I was astonished. The next morning, when I saw her about that, I asked her. She said that the floors the employees were on were not heated or lit. <laughs> my mouth dropped open. It's all right, she said. Don't worry. They give us candles and plenty of blankets. Whew. But the spirit and the kindness of the people we came into contact were all generous and warm. Yes, the ones who spoke English were surely strictly instructed about what they could or could not say. But instead of the distant coldness that we had expected, my friend, the violist Kathy Green, and I were particularly impressed by the friendliness of everyone we met much as the people of South Korea. And yes, we could discuss issues such as the wish for reunification of the two Koreas and so forth, and, and relatives who were separated from the other side. One of my most exciting experiences was being allowed to visit the National Conservatory of Music. Here my minder seemed to let me off on my own, and I went from the office of the conservatory to the practice and ensemble rooms freely. To my extreme surprise, a number of the conservatory students spoke at least some English. Imagine that! Several of them started following me from room to room, regaling me with questions about America and the West, just as I regaled them with my own questions. I listened to one string quartet playing, I couldn't believe it at first, Mozart, but it was, why not? And they were playing beautifully and talking and rehearsing, of course, in Korean, just as any quartet in the world might. I was almost in tears. I, I came to the conclusion that the people of North Korea were not brainwashed. They were not our enemies. The government was, to be sure, of course, 
but the people were not. Time and again, Kathy and I were impressed by this fact. When people talk to people directly, especially about what they love, like maybe music, art, sports, or whatever, a kinship inevitably arises. It's so easy to think of people as the other, but in fact, they simply aren't. And now I was building up to my great moment in Pyongyang. As the last day approached, there was to be a concert of the Mendelssohn Octet, Opus 20. This was a wonderful collaboration led by our concertmaster, Glenn Dixterow, our principal string players forming a string quartet, and to get, well, there was no bass player there, too bad. But anyway, our string players, together with a comparable quartet from the conservatory in Pyongyang. Glenn later reported that the North Koreans were completely prepared, performed their parts to perfection, and were a pleasure to work with. Well, not surprising to me, I'd already heard them. The concert was strictly limited in time, of course. The buses for the airport were waiting outside. We were all packed and ready to go. But I had an idea. I had with me scores and parts of a very young composer piece written by a student of ours, Farah Taslima, called Peaceland. Farah was born in Bangladesh. I asked Glenn about the running time of the Mendelssohn. He gave me the estimated time. I said, Glenn, if the concert even allowing for speeches and so forth, ends with ten minutes to spare, I would like to come up to the stage and hand out parts to Ferris Peace. And he looked at it. It was an outrageous idea, but if it could work. Glenn, thank God, he was receptive to the plan. <laughs> and he was to look at me at the end and give me a sign with his head, yes or no, in terms of time. I was seated near the front row, and I must mention this was not a public concert by any means. The entire audience were some 700 men and a few women, all in military uniform. This was an official concert of the highest order. As the last notes of the Mendelssohn finished, an enthusiastic applause broke out. Glenn actually remembered <laughs> to look at his watch and looked out at me, and nodded his head. Just as the official moderator began his speech in Korean, of course, I took a deep breath and actually mounted the stage. I think this was the boldest action I've ever taken in my life, with the possible exception of leaping a 150-foot deep crevasse on Mount McKinley in Denali in Alaska. The look on the moderator's face was disbelief. What is going on? A mixture of surprise, confusion, fear, and, uh, you know, something else. This was a military concert, after all. What if... Ay. But I cleared my throat and said, <clears throat> This concert has been a wonderful expression of cooperation between the musicians of our two countries. I paused, looked at the moderator, and amazingly he translated what I said. Quote, as the expression of a child born in Bangladesh, midway between our countries, Farah Taslima, ten years old, has written a piece for you and wishes to give it to you as a gift. It is named Peaceland. I quickly passed out the parts. The players, though informed by Glenn, 
about what might happen. They were still surprised, of course. The piece was simple, clear, and lovely. Glenn gave the downbeat, and as the music flowed, I returned to my seat. It was a triumph. The applause was long and loud. We boarded the bus and were on our way to the airport. What I didn't know at the time was that the Associated Press, AP, had gotten hold of the incident. I and a Philharmonic member of our PR department were interviewed in Seoul as we arrived at the airport. The reporters were all over the idea of Farah's peace and wanted to know all about her. Farah became a celebrity like Ijun Jung, except that there was no downside or resistance. Farah when they interviewed her when we had come back to America, Farah handled all the media interviews on her end with grace and wit. <laughs> a ten-year-old. <laughs> she later said, I'm fine with my 15 minutes of fame. Her immigrant parents were working hard at their working-class jobs, doing even night work as a night watchman, and were so proud of her. Farah eventually went to Columbia University studying psychotherapy. She will be a natural leader in whatever situation she finds herself, I am sure. And perhaps one of the most significant results of this tour was the reaction of the tour's main financial sponsor, Credit Suisse. Their head of corporate giving, Tony Krein, had accompanied us on the entire tour. At his valedictory speech to the orchestra, staff and administration, and the press, Tony singled out the VYC as one of the Philharmonic's most impressive achievements. I was both delighted and astonished, and on top of it, he turned out he was not just giving praise, but followed it with action. After we'd returned to New York, I found that he'd had informed the Philharmonic that Credit Suisse would give a sizable grant on a three-year basis to support the work of the very young composers, particularly our international efforts. I was informed that from now on, the VYC would be known officially as the Credit Suisse Very Young Composers. At first, I was taken aback at this news as it began to put forth a question as to whom the VYC actually belongs, a question not completely <laughs> resolved to this day. But, however, you know, not being a basically possessive person, I felt disinclined to focus on ownership but rather on the huge opportunities of reaching children worldwide that this situation afforded. In short, I was delighted. Let's get to work! Mm -hmm. 